You're listening to the Habitology Podcast with Melanie White, and today I am talking with Jenny Keady about the Myers-Briggs Personality Test. And Jenny, I'm so thrilled you're here, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi. Well, thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Jenny Keady, as Mel said. I've been around the coaching and the training field probably now for about 25 years, and I've probably always just been fascinated in what makes people tick. And uh, that's obviously why training and, and um, the coaching are a natural sort of fit. But then you go deeper and you think sort of what is it that makes individuals tick? It's easy to see behaviours, but go what's going on beneath the scenes? So I've actually been quite attracted to a lot of different tools over my time. You know, Myers-Briggs being a key one of them, astrology sometimes, you know, the DISC model, uh, four tendencies, there's all sorts of things that just can help us understand ourselves and understand others. So, yeah, all this comes together really nicely in terms of what I do and, and coaching as well. Thanks, Jenny. I think you raise an important point of this curiosity, curiosity about ourselves and people, and we know that the first condition of change is self-awareness. So the more awareness we have, theoretically, the easier it is for us to take the first step toward change. Hmm. Yeah, and I think this is so important both as a coach but also understanding our client. But it's, we've got to know ourselves first. And, and I think quite often when we start coaching, we've got our head full of trying to work out what's going on for the client. But it really makes it easier if we can have that awareness of ourself and, and that will help us appreciate the differences in other people as well. Mm. So, Jenny, on that note, can you tell us a little bit about the Myers-Briggs test and how we can use it to understand ourselves better? Okay. So I guess first up, the Myers-Briggs test has been around for a long time. It was based on the work of Carl Jung, who was a, a Swiss psychiatrist, who did a lot of work around different behaviours. And then there was a, a mother and daughter team who used the work of Carl Jung to sort of put this together into what we now know as the Myers-Briggs type indicator. It's quite complex in terms of to be really accredited to use the the tool effectively. You know, it's almost like a university semester of training and it's quite intense, but there's some psychological principles that's been around for a long time. But I, I guess what I want to say, there's about three layers of this. It is a very complex tool, so it's not just for everybody. Mm. However, there are, you can use it in a more simplified way. I think the key thing is with any of these tools, what we want to do is, you know, coming back to your word curiosity, we want to be curious. We want to see what is it that this tool provides um, mm. that might help me in terms of my own awareness or might help me when I'm working with clients. So, for example, the what I like about the Myers-Briggs type indicator, it, it looks at like there's 16 different aspects to it, so which come through in four different scales. Mm -hmm. And those scales just provide a little bit more depth to, to the person, you know, what energizes them, you know, whether they're energized internally or whether they're energized by the external world, mm -hmm. you know, how they, how they think, how they make decisions, how they approach life. So it's just got a few more layers to it than some of the other tools and hence probably why it's quite involved to formally learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also believe that if you've got an understanding of some of this, you can use it in a more simplified um, way. And often we've used that in training just to get people to self-assess, giving them some descriptions of some of those four scales and letting them choose where they think they might fit. Mm -hmm. 
So different levels at which you can use it and obviously that deep study that you can do. And actually speaking of that, I'm curious to know when you did that training, what what sort of insights did you get about yourself? Oh, well, I think... (laughs) I think it's one of the things, and I always, it's funny how I come back to this. This was actually in the training itself, and what they did, they'd asked us a few different questions, and then they they put us into tables of sort of like-minded people. And I always remember they gave an example of, you know, being at uni or a university assessment or an assignment that was due. And, um, you know, I, I think when you're in a training environment and you're sort of around sort of like-minded people it's just interesting how it brings out the norms so for example there was one particular table and I'm not making any confession at this stage there was one particular table who were the people who left it to the last minute you know they got energized by that last minute rush to the finishing line and uh, that was the norm and you could see this table all sort of laughing and you know really relating to that and then there was another table they were totally stressed out at the thought of it. Oh, no, how could you possibly do that? They were the sort of people who got the university assignment and started mapping it out, you know, step by step by step and and couldn't possibly wait till the last moment because of the stress of that would ab- absolutely <laughs> destroy them. And, yeah, just seeing that in two tables, like I had a, a bit of a, a, a chuckle to myself and, I'm not going to admit which table I was on, but you probably will know. (laughs) It's possibly that we would have both been on different tables in that example as as well. But what I I also thought was the interesting insight from that was even though those people did leave things to the last minute, you know, it's easy for people to judge and go, oh, they're slack or, you know, they're out partying or make judgments and assessments. But the thing that really stood out for me is that even though they might leave the action they're often thinking about it. So mm-hmm. it's not like they're not doing anything, but right. it doesn't appear that they're doing anything. Yeah, we're very methodical. You know, it was part of their schedule. It was a priority. Um, yeah, it was sort of, it was fascinating just to see. And just one little example. And, um, but also what I really took out of that was that when you're on that table of the last minute people, you know, that camaraderie that you had because everyone felt normal. They were like you. Oh. And the people on the other table, that was the same effect. They were having that. This this isn't right. This feels normal. We get one another. So it sort of highlights that that sometimes we can think that, you know, we're right and they're wrong or the other way around, where really it's just appreciating differences. And I always remember at the time I was doing a lot of training and and I used it not from a coaching point of view at that stage as a training tool in with different groups in the workplace. And I always remember a group of receptionists we had at one stage and the insight that they got was amazing because suddenly these people that were ringing up weren't these grumpy clients. They suddenly realised that these were just people that maybe were different than them. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that that's where it's just so valuable that once we understand that we're not all the same, you know, we can then appreciate some of those differences and then we can go to another layer and say, well, what are those differences and how can I work with those to bring the best out of both of us in this particular situation? And that's why I think the true value is. It's not about labelling somebody and saying you're this and you're that, um, you know, the the other part of Myers-Briggs that I really think it's not, we use all those preferences. Mm -hmm. 
we use all those preferences but we just have a natural one so it's a bit like being a left-hander or a right-hander if you're naturally right-handed that's going to feel easier for you mm-hmm. and yet if you break your right hand yes you can certainly learn to use your left hand but it's never going to feel quite the same mm-hmm. and I think with the MBTI preferences it's a little bit similar we've all got a bit of each of a dinners but yeah. there will be a more natural preference but also, and this is a lot more involved and more than we need to for today, there is a whole developmental phase that goes with this. So even if you start out more extroverted, as you get older, you, that sort of introversion side will sort of start to strengthen. So I see a lot of people who say, oh, I used to be an extrovert, but now I'm an introvert. No, you, you haven't actually changed. You're just strengthening or developing that introversion aspect of yourself. I was going to ask you about that, how people's scores change over time, and that's a great example of a shift. And, and you, you're saying it's not necessarily a change but a focusing on a different area. Yeah, and and as I said, it's quite complex and it's not something, I mean, I'm familiar with it but not sort of, you know, not in terms of sort of sharing it fully. There mm-hmm. is a whole developmental phase. So in our early stage, we'd have a dominant function, we have a tertiary function, We've got different functions that will come to the fore at different stages of our life. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of most people who do any research in this area will say some of these natural preferences usually come through when we're younger, and that's what we grow up with. That's what we get used to. But as we, you know, and also I believe that as we we age, we gain experience, we gain wisdom. Sometimes, you know, we, we get to be familiar with those different preferences, but. Yeah, it's a little bit like the strength survey and, and other tools. It's not that you lose them. You just have more of a focus on different areas at different times. So, mm-hmm. for example, you know, I was always very high on the extroversion scale. I'm nowhere near that high on that extroversion scale now, but mm-hmm. I still at my core, I'm I'm more of an extrovert than an introvert. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fascinating one, and maybe we can just have a quick look at, at that as a scale. So... Mm-hmm if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this is taking a really simple look at it and and because the scale, extroversion, introversion, so on one end you've got the extroversion, mm-hmm. on the other end you've got introversion. And it's not, you won't be one or the other, you'll be somewhere along that, that scale. Mm-hmm. But people often misunderstand what that is. So extra, this particular scale is looking at where you get your energy from, what energises you. It's not whether you're the life of the party as such, but the the key difference here is that somebody who's more on the extroversion side of that scale are going to be someone who's energised by other people. They get that energy from their outer world, Mm. by people, by activities, whereas an introversion is is probably that's more likely to get that energy from within. They need to sort of go within to sort of recharge. you know, they're the sort of people who need time to think about things. They need time to reflect. They'll think first and then they'll act later, whereas mm-hmm. an extrovert might, you know, and I'm talking extremes here because we're going to be in various sort of stages of it. You know, an extroversion might act and then think later. Mm-hmm. So you can already see just on that particular scale what that influence could be, and, and especially as a coach, if you're somebody who is very extroverted, for example, and you're working with someone who is more introverted, you could be getting impatient thinking, come on, talk, come on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or on the other hand, and, and I think this is another key sort of thing just to add in, 
when mm. we get stressed, we're more likely to revert back to what that natural preference is. So, for example, if I was more extroverted and I'm feeling stressed because I'm working with a new client who is very different, I'm likely to become even more extroverted. I'm likely to talk faster. I'm likely to, to rush things. Mm-hmm. And just simple little things like that can make such a difference. And you can see the impact that that could have on a conversation. I've just actually recorded two podcasts on introvert coaches and extrovert coaches, funnily enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you're talking about you being very extroverted and being less so now. I started life as extremely introverted. Like I was terrified of speaking. I didn't want want people to see me eating in public, all sorts of things that I I would just sit silently and not, not want people to look at me. As a kid, I was extremely introverted. And I actually think I've become more extroverted as I've gotten older, probably getting rid of fears and anxieties along the way and doing a lot of work. I'm on the borderline. I'm probably that what they call the ambivert, but on the I'm just on the I side. I'm curious on your thoughts on that too. Well, well, my thing is I would say you're always the introvert. And mm. and I mean from from this perspective, always got that as a natural preference. But the reality is the extroversion would probably be your tertiary function, and it's now coming to the fore. It's now, it's now its turn to stand up and be recognized. And I think the other thing is it's really important to think that just because you're extrovert or introvert doesn't mean to say you can't do do either. And mm-hmm. I often share an example of, of my sister, and this could also apply equally to, to you, given yeah, the understanding we have of each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my sister, like you, does a lot of training. She does a lot of coaching and she's out there. She can be out there on stage. She can be running training courses and and uh, all day talking to people but at the end of the day she needs her cave time as we call it yeah. she needs to Shut withdraw. Up, <laughs> yeah. and and the thing is if she doesn't she can burn out really quickly whereas an extrovert could have all that happen and be totally revved up and charged and just want more of that so yeah, yeah does, does that make sense for you there oh, absolutely and, and as you're talking and, and about the concept of energy and managing energy I've realized that my secret formula is to start and finish the day with reading I wake up in the morning normally a bit before Jay pick up my Kindle and read for half an hour and I'm yeah. ready to go because I've done that internal something for me thing yeah I don't need to go and talk to people but I get that and I get energized from doing that and at the end of the day I must read at least one page before I go to bed. There's something about that that helps me to calm down my nervous system, get into my body. And that's such a classic example, isn't it, what you can do with that awareness. Once you've got that awareness, you can make choices that serve you and allow your strengths to sort of come out when they need to be. So there are times when you need to be out there and doing your thing. But if you don't take that time, as you're saying, at either end of the day or whenever that happens to be to recharge, it, it's like I just recently saw a quote on, on Facebook only earlier today and it said something like some of us have to sort of you know step back to or quieten down to recharge and others don't get that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a classic example of knowing what it is that we need to, you know, where we get that energy from. And that's just one scale. But I think it's also important, you know, like I gave that example with my sister and with you, you know, there's a lot of comedians and actors that are actually introvert and yet we think because they're on stage that Mm -hmm. they are extrovert. So this is why it's important not to judge. It's just to be open to different styles. But I think 
one of the things, well, just while we're on this scale too, is that there's probably people are more familiar with extroverts out there. That's what they see. So often I see introverts feeling less than, feeling lacking in confidence. And I remember coaching a girl, a lovely girl one time, and she was an extreme introvert. And part of what we were doing was just her getting to know her better and how to use her sort of strengths. And I remember it was such an aha moment and it was beautiful, both of us. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. And she just stopped and she said, thank you. This is the first time I have ever felt proud to be an introvert. And it's the sort of thing that we really got to watch that we don't give ourselves a hard time, understanding ourselves and, and how we can use our strengths. But suddenly when we were talking through these different things, she could see that it was okay to be an introvert. And not only that, it was when she actually accepted her introversion in that sort of context that she could really be herself and that's when she started to shine. And that was just so powerful as a conversation. And that's just one scale. That's not looking at how all these others sort of fit in. Do you want to have a look at some of the other scales just out of curiosity? Absolutely. So so the second scale um, is, is that one of how we gather information. So you've got your sensing versus your intuition. So a sensor is really going to need to have the facts and the details. They need to see it, touch it, feel it. Is it real? You know, um, they're not the sort of people who can just trust their gut necessarily they're not the sort of people who can just wing it because they need they need that sort of um sort of stuff that's there proof yeah Yeah, give me the proof um whereas whereas somebody like the the well I was gonna say the intuitor the intuition type sort of person they're going to trust their gut they're going to have this connection with their heart perhaps maybe their um I don't want to mix it up with the next sort of category, but maybe their values come to the fore. You know, they're guided by that sort of inner part mm-hmm. as opposed to the the evidence. Um, you know, the the sense is going to be quite sort of methodical. They need to, yeah. And this is really interesting because we know that when we talk about coaching and we're working with a client and creating a vision, a vision can be a very intuitive process if mm-hmm. it's done well. And yet if you think about a sensor, perhaps not being able to see into the future, we've got to really think about the language we use and how we can help somebody who is a sensor sort of get some of that concrete information mm-hmm. with a, a concept that's not concrete. Does that make sense? Yeah, and as you're speaking, I'm wondering if that kind of shows up in the words that a client might use. For example, yeah. the the S might have very different language about more tangible things that they want to achieve versus the N, the intuitive person. Yeah, so it's just just sort of thing just to bear in mind that it doesn't say we shouldn't be doing a vision, but our language is a really good way of of communicating with people. Are you an S or an N, Jenny? Me? Yeah. What do you think? (laughs) Very much an N, yeah. And it, it's interesting because when we used to do this sort of webinar, like every time I'd go through certain characteristics, it's just like, yes, okay. Now, like it was even just reminding me even more. Even though I wrote the webinar and I knew what I was sort of saying, it was just like, that is so me. That is so me. And I think that's the thing. It's not about it being good or bad. It's just about you. And when you understand you, then you can use your strengths to your your advantage. For example, and- 
knowing how to trust yourself because you know that intuition is a strength of yours versus knowing, okay, I need some facts in order to make a decision. So making a decision, your approach to making that decision might be very different. And I think the, um, you know, just picking up on that theme, as we said, with experience with age and different developmental phases, we're obviously using all of those sort of preferences. But Mm -hmm. can you see that, yeah, the other thing that the intuitor does is be able to think big picture. Yeah. And and can you see without that big picture, some of the detail doesn't matter? And and the same in reverse. If you there's a time and a place where you do need to sort of come down from the, the helicopter view and focus on that nitty-gritty, but you need both. Yeah. And that, that kind of leads into perhaps where your client might need support. If they're very big picture, they might struggle with the details or the planning or the concrete actions. And someone that's very, I need a tangible thing, might find it hard to see where it's all going perhaps. Yeah. And it is interesting because I think it is the combination of all of them because at one stage I was sort of thinking if you if you can see big picture but are you taking the steps you need to do, you know, and again coming back to a model that we're, we're both using a lot is that, you know, maybe the intuitor is good at the vision but are they good at taking the, the action and there might be other things that would influence that so I don't want to overgeneralise. Yeah. But it is getting that that image of of both. Mm. Now the the third scale, just as, again, I want to separate these two things. Is is how people make decisions. So again, that's an interesting one. Do you do it from a thinking from a head perspective, or do you do it from a heart perspective? So that's the scale: the thinkers versus the feelers. Now, it doesn't mean to say if you're a thinker you don't feel, and it doesn't mean to say if you're a feeler you don't think. But generally, the thinker is going to be more logical. It's going to be more factual. It's the pros and cons. It's sort of you know, it's cut to the chase. Yeah. Whereas the the feeler is going to really start looking at the personal implications of that. How mm-hmm. does that impact on the people? They're concerned about making the right decision that's going to sort of, I don't know, not just please people, but it's it's going to be in the interests of the people, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. they yeah, they are interested in people. Um, you could say the thinkers at that stage are more interested in the facts or, or the process or, or the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's the sort of thing that there doesn't tend to be the extremes in this thinking and feeling scale. People can sort of hover a bit around the middle. And I've also found it over the time that um, sometimes your work roles can influence if you're doing, like I I was very strong on the feeling side, but in a role one time when I was doing a lot of policy work, you know, the, the thinking was sort of taking, you know, more of a priority there. So, again, it's just showing you differences, but it's the fact that it's the way you think about something. Um, so I know you've shared some things. Would you like to sort of share how given what I've just said about that scale, how that applies to you? Yeah, I'm T. In fact, for all of mine, I'm very close to the middle Mm. of each of these scales, funnily enough. I'm either side of the middle and I think I'm just on the thinking side and probably having my first career as a scientist, I intuitively did things and made decisions, but I definitely thought through things and made decisions based on fact or did things based on a a structure. I tend to be very structured. Feeling not so much, Mm -hmm. funnily enough. Mm. Yeah. But, again, I think like the extroversion, introversion, it doesn't mean to say you can't do those things. You've got those things and they will play out in different ways. 
Um, but at the same time, your natural preference is to sort of think more logically, more based on facts, you know, what's fair. Um, mm. Yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's, the strength of that is it can be quite impartial. It mm. can because it's not getting caught up in the emotion of something. So there's going to be more positive aspects and sort of less positive aspects of all of these sort of things. So, again, it's not about judging. It's just showing that range and how that might apply both to ourselves first. And I still come back to if we know it in ourselves first and then those people around us, it's a lot easier than we work with somebody else. Mm. And also thinking about how that shows up in coaching, for example, I find it easy to be unattached to the other person's outcome. I don't lie awake at night thinking about all these poor people that I've coached. <laughs> if, and, and, you know, I care about them, but yeah, no, yeah. I'm not taking on that energy. I, I can have that clear separation. And I always thought, what is that? Do I lack empathy? Or what, why is it that I'm like that? But perhaps it's because I'm in that thinking mode. and Possibly. And maybe you're compartmentalising. And, again, I'm much better at that now than I used to be. So whether that's a developmental phase, that, yeah. whether that's you know, one of those sort of tertiary functions that's sort of kicking in as well. But I, I think the point there to stress is it doesn't mean to say you don't care about your, your clients. You definitely care about them. But but you're you're compartmentalizing. You're a lot more rational and logical in your thinking. So it is up to them, and that's what coaching is all about. And the intuitive part still allows you to have the connection. You can feel in your body where somebody else has got that tension, and to notice that I think brings in some of that empathy and that relational side of the yeah. But as we said, each each of the scales and each of the sort of particular ends of the scales are, are going to have their strengths and weaknesses so somebody who is a coach who is overly invested in the feeling side of things is never going to be able to make the tough calls that sometimes we need to make as a coach you need to have that courage to sort of challenge or to, or to call a client if, if we're to do the job and if you're too worried about what they're thinking about you or whether you're you know whether you're making them happy or, or not. I mean, they're not paying you to make them happy as such, but it doesn't mean to say we don't care and we don't want the best for our client, but we want the best for our client by helping them be the best version of themselves so mm -hmm. that you know, they can sort of be aligned. Jenny, so are you uh, on the thinking or the feeling side? Where are you on that scale? On the feeling side. But I'm more thinking these days. But it's not that more thinking. I'm always got the the feeling side. But I I'm you know hovering more, closer to the middle on that one than any of the other scales. So mm -hmm. yeah. But again, the awareness you have knows that you can use both when it's appropriate to use both. So you know, put me with my you know seven year old grandson, and I'm all feeling. <laughs> yeah. No, not really. I would also have thinking aspects of that just because of the logistics. But, again, certain situations will bring out that. But I do think that at times, you know, we see a lot of people through the training we do that, you know, people come into coaching because they want to help. And sometimes people think that they want to help by being nice to people mm -hmm. and, and that's not necessarily the best thing for the client or, or for the coach. You can burn out very quickly if your feeling meter is running high. Um, and I wonder if that ties into compassion fatigue, someone who's very could. high on the F. Yeah, yeah it certainly could. Um, again, that's why we need that awareness to sort of work out if that's the case. Now, just that last scale, just so we can sort of put the picture to, to, together, is that how you approach your life. And you've got your judging, 
versus your perceiving. And I know judging is one of those uh-oh words when it comes to sort of coaching, but in this context, you know, judging is you're, you're planning your work, you're sort of on track, you're scheduling, um, you enjoy finishing and seeing completion, you feel that work comes before play, you know, you want routine, <laughs> all those things. Do they sound familiar, Mel? Yes. <laughs> Organisation, <laughs> clarity, compassion. Again, and there, there is some, it'll seem a little bit similar, but it's not than the previous one because this is how you approach your life versus the other one was how you make the decisions. I think this is about, to me, I use the word discernment. It's about being discerning with how you spend your time. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's also what I find, uh, what I tend to see in this is that people who have that J preference, they are more structured. They are more routine. There is a time factor. There's a you know a, a, a sign on a, a, a sign off type of thing. It's a lot more, but it's not a bad thing because those people have their 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 schedule organised mm. in a way that allows them to do the work that they need to do. As long as you don't cling on to it with white knuckles. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> or expect that everybody else works the same way is what I would add to that one. Whereas the people on the other side, they're what they're calling the perceiving end of the scale. These people are sort of, you know, go with the flow, take on whatever's going on at the time. They enjoy starting things but not necessarily finishing things. They, you know, they feel that play and work co coexist together. It's like, what gets my attention? Oh, boom, you know, off, off and doing that. Um, you know, they solve problems as they arise. You know, they're not, and again, there's a time and a place when that works really well, but they, they're they available for whatever's best for them at the, at the time. And mm -hmm. they're probably not going to have a, a routine to that extent. They probably want to be able to be seeing what happens, what's you know, what works best for them on, on the given day. They like the spontaneity. That's probably what it is there, the spontaneity versus the sort of certainty of knowing sort of what's going on. But as I said, if you put this under the banner, that's a general approach to life. You know, the judge, judging part of the scale, you know, you set your watch, you have a meeting at a certain time, they'll be there on time. Mm -hmm. you know, the perceiving end, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I've got a meeting on. You know, they're the ones who I know. I've got a sister who we used to say we must tell her half an hour that we're starting half an hour earlier, so she would be there. You know, like if we had a ten o'clock meeting, we'd say to her, yeah. you know, we've got to be there at nine thirty because that way she might have arrived by ten o'clock. Mm. So, can you see the differences in yeah. those two? I have that sister. Yeah, yeah. Jenny, I'm trying to see which one of those you are because I know that you like spontaneity, but I also know that you like order. Yeah, I'm I'm the P. I'm the P. Um but I, I think it is I like the spontaneity, but I do believe we all need a little bit of routine. And it, it's it's interesting because I would rarely ever be late. I'm not a late person, even though I'm a P. So this is why we've got to just not generalize, but look at those general characteristics. Where does it show up? Yeah, but it is interesting because I I think that personally I like the spontaneity, but I also know that my body responds well to some kind of routine. Mm -hmm. So ideally, we've got those four scales, and what will happen is we'll either have a natural preference for one end or the other, and the idea is we'll end up with a four-letter code, which will become our type. And and I think what I really like, even just doing a self-assessment. You can work out what you might be. You can have a look at the descriptions of the ones around you 
It's yeah, you don't need a, a system telling you what you are. Have a look at those and see what resonates for you. And that's enough awareness to get started. So you've got that self-awareness option, keeping it simple versus doing a more formal questionnaire, which is only going to give you feedback on what you've put into it. Mm. And I do believe that you do gain a lot if you do a formal one by having somebody who is skilled to help you understand it. You yeah. know, I see a lot of people get information and then they run off saying, oh, I'm a, I'm a this, but they yeah. don't really understand what that means for them or mm. you know, anybody else. But people generally love finding out about themselves. Yeah, and that kind of leads into, I suppose, the last part of this conversation is how does a coach who chooses to study this or use this as a basic tool, how do they use that to add value to the coaching session? And I suppose part of that answer is it's a self-awareness tool that allows people to understand how and why they operate, which helps them to make perhaps decisions about parts of their life. But what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's a tool. It's a tool like anything else, and, and the power of the tool is in how you use it. Like I, it's not the sort of thing you start your first session and then you blah, throw out all your tools and go there and, and do it. I think you've just got to trust yourself and look at, you know, um, what's going to add value to the session. First mm-hmm. and foremost, as a coach, I think the more of this we can do, the better because the better we understand ourselves. Mm. the better we understand people that we're working with. And you and I have both shared some examples this morning where, you know, we can see it in others. We can see our sister who might have a different sort of quality or preference to us. And I think that's the thing. As a coach, as an individual, how does this apply to me? How can I see differences in people around me? And then what might this mean for me when I start to work with a, a new client who I'm maybe less familiar with? You can ask and you can sort of get a bit of a sense just from some of the questions. Um, as you've also said, using language, using a variety of language in the way you talk to your client to try and sort of get a bit of an understanding mm-hmm. about, you know, about them. You know, what do they like to do at the end of a busy day? You know, yeah. Do they like to go and party? Do they like to go and, you know, retreat and read a book or sort of have cave time, as I described? Yeah, you know, just some of those things will help you understand your client. You don't need them to do a formal, you know, um, assessment. Mm-hmm. If over the time you feel that, you know, something else like that would work, well, again, come down to you as a coach and what are your skills and your background. If this is your first exposure, you don't go and get somebody to do a full MBTI process because you wouldn't, as a coach, be able to guide them through the next steps. Mm-hmm. You may be better off using something like the Strength Survey or Gretchen mm-hmm. Rubin's Four Tendencies. But if you are familiar with this and you do want to know more about it, there's a lot of good resources out there and and you and I can both provide support in terms of of that. But I think the key is it's an awareness tool. It's helping them understand themselves. When they understand themselves, they get a greater appreciation of their strengths, like I shared with that client that I'd worked with. Mm. And then when they do that, I see that a lot of the things that we do in the coaching you know, can come to the fore. Like, you know, for example, coming back to that example, the introvert, she was wanting to be setting up a, a coaching business and she was there was the thought of going into an existing practice and running some talks. And she was very comfortable in that sort of clinic environment, but she the thought of presenting and being out in front, you know, 
So, you know, we talked through different ways that using her strength, she could, you know, was that the best way for her to work? Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't, what other ways she could do that were more in alignment with her? So I think it's that idea that, you know, there's always more than one way to skin a cat, that horrible saying. Um, But I think the things that are important is that when we have that understanding of ourselves, it helps the way we communicate, it helps the way we relate to other people. And the two areas that tend to cause the most problems is around communication and is around our relationships with people. Coaching mm-hmm. is all about communication and relationships with people, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So if we understand ourselves better, we can then think how can we communicate with others to bring out the best in them? And isn't that what coaching is all about, bringing out the best in, in, a, mm-hmm. in another person? Um, but if we, we've got to be aware that when we get stressed, what happens? Yeah, those natural preferences come to the fore, which can conflict with communication and relationships yeah it's it's so true and another thing that I think I got as an overarching flavor of this conversation is that a test like this creates perspective yeah of yourself and others and it might also generate acceptance of yourself and others and perhaps some level of tolerance so that awareness of yourself and others and the differences can actually help you be a more accepting and tolerant person perhaps. And you gave a couple of examples of that with I think you mentioned some admin staff or reception staff that had done this test and realised that they weren't awful customers, they were just different. Yeah. And I think, as I said, you can look at that within your immediate family and, and the circle of friends. So it's not like you have to be having clients to be able to do this. And if you can see that in action, and I think it does, it allows you to be less judgmental, which is also what we want in terms of coaching, more accepting. But I think it also helps you diversify the way you work to to reflect, you know, like any of us who are doing training and coaching, we want the best for the people we're working with. Um, We can't do that if we can't do the best for ourselves too. I'll just add that little bit in there. That's that reminder that we're, it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? We're all a work in progress. But I think if we can help our clients shine naturally, they're going to feel more empowered to take the action that they need to, to take. And I think that's a thing. It's, it is a tool. It's not about labelling people. And I think that's one really strong point. You don't need to have the tool to sort of increase your awareness of other people, but these tools really do give you some deeper insight and, and I like how you asked right at the beginning, you know, what were my insights when I did it? So sometimes just those insights help you, you know, learn and grow and, and flourish as well, don't they? Yeah. So really powerful. People love finding out about themselves. They do. And, and I think it is a great, you know, some of these tools are fabulous tools to, to support that. But obviously then as a coach, it's what do we do with that information to sort mm. of help people move forward, including ourselves. Jenny, thanks so much for your time today. It's a really interesting conversation. I love how you unpacked those four levels. And hopefully people listening to this have got some great insights about how they can better understand themselves and also how they can perhaps look at a client's strengths in a different way. So really appreciate you going through that in detail. And this is a juicy episode that I can't wait to share. <laughs> and it, there's so much we could talk all day on this couldn't we I know I'm already thinking of a hundred other things but okay <laughs> that's right put it back in its little box come we'll have a part two <laughs> yeah okay sounds good wonderful <laughs> thanks, thanks Jill. Jill.